Hello and welcome to another episode of the Petrolhead Podcast. I'm Kyle Mayer. And I'm Chaz Logue. And this is our fifth episode. Still in quarantine. And we are still in quarantine. Um, soon to be not, though. Uh, we've surpassed the uh, the initial uh, kind of easing of the quarantine of, of May 20th. So um, the sun has been shining here in central Connecticut. And um, people are itching to go outside. I've already seen plenty of people without any masks on anymore. There's been, actually, with all this uh, letting down and easing down of the quarantine, there's been some updates in the world of racing. Not just um, with the big series, but the smaller series as well, or at least like the uh, the lesser known series are starting to um, get things together, get postponed races uh, put together and plans set for the rest of the season. Um, but I think the the uh, the things that have been grabbing the headlines recently is the Formula One, what's called the silly season, where uh, riders come out of contract and um, teams hire them on board to be their drivers for the following year. Um, and so that's that's that news has kind of dominated uh, the motorsport world for the last couple of weeks. Chaz, what are your thoughts about some of the the driver swaps that have been going on? Yeah, so to set the frame, you know, I think this whole uh, you know musical chairs was started by Sebastian Vettel. Um, I guess he was in talks with Ferrari and couldn't agree on a contract price. I know they were paying him a ton of money, uh, way more than they were paying Charles Leclerc, and I think they wanted to reduce his pay, bring him more in line with Leclerc, considering Leclerc finished in front of him in the in the points last year. So I think so. Whatever the negotiations were, I guess if Vettel wasn't happy and he turned it down. That's kind of my understanding of that. So they filled that seat with uh, Carlos Sainz from McLaren. Um, now McLaren then had an open seat and Danny Ricardo, who has been hopping around a lot cause he was at Red Bull and I think he was at Toro Rosa before that. Um, and then, you know, he, then he came over to, uh, Renault. Uh, so then he jumped his Renault seat after only what, two seasons, um, mm-hmm. or even one season. Yeah. Two seasons. And then he, so then he jumped over from Renault to McLaren, uh, which I actually think was a good move by Ricardo. So I'm not a big fan of, of Ricardo jumping seats anyway, but, um, you know, with McLaren getting a Mercedes engine for 2021, I think that they're going to be a pretty competitive team to watch. And and I'm a big fan of Lando Norris as well. So uh, McLaren's probably going to be the team that I root for the most uh, in 2021. But that does leave an open seat for Renault right now um, as we're recording this. So um, the speculation has been jumping all over. Is it going to be Fernando Alonso? Are they going to take, uh, you know, is Vettel going to drop down to Renault? Are they going to take uh, uh, Botas from uh, Mercedes? You know, are they going to take Sergio Perez? You know, it, there's there's so many so much speculation right now of who's going to get that Renault seat. Um, so I think my initial thoughts are it's surprising to see Vettel go. Um, so if Vettel doesn't end up with a 2021 seat, that would be pretty surprising. Uh, I know he had a rough rough season in 2019 um, where he was basically battling with his teammate Charles Leclerc, who was you know outpacing him in some sectors, but then Vettel was outpacing pacing in other sectors and then you know he's he's kind of been known to spin a lot and make mistakes um so uh you know it's it, but at the same time he's a he's a what four-time world champion um mm-hmm. so it's, uh it, it would it would really be tough to see him go because i don't think that he's he's uh he's at the point of retirement i mean he's still a great driver he's still a top top guy um but i think he you know i don't know if he was calling ferrari's bluff on on you know not increasing his contract price and it didn't work out 
but um, you know, currently he's without a seat. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think best case scenario for Vettel would be Bottas drops down to Renault. And I say drops down because, you know, Mercedes is a top team right now and Renault is a, kind of a midfield competitor. But right. if Bottas drops down to Renault uh, on a contract, then, uh, you know, that would allow Vettel to come over. Uh, I know Mercedes has been talking to Vettel. I think everybody's been talking to Vettel. Uh, I mm-hmm. think everybody's been talking to Alonso as well. Um, and, uh, you know, right now there's, ju- there's just one open seat. So... Is it going to get filled or is another seat going to open up while they fill that one like both tests and then Mercedes opens up? Um, and then if Mercedes opens up, you know, do they take Vettel or do they finally promote um, uh, George Russell? Right. Because mm. I know they've been in, in close contacts with George Russell as they sort of groomed him uh, to get into Formula One. He's an awesome driver in a very underpowered car at Williams. Uh, so he, he definitely needs, you know, he needs a really good car. And maybe this is going to be his opportunity. But, you know, again, it's all speculation at this point, And we're just going to see how it ultimately plays out. Is Williams running Mercedes engines right now? I believe so. Okay. It's very interesting that kind of, you know, quote unquote, works teams like McLaren, like they ran Honda engines and that was not very good. They ran Renault engines and that's been working out better for them. And now they're switching again to Mercedes. And so I, I find it interesting that McLaren switching to Mercedes when they've kind of been on a little bit of a winning formula with Renault. But I don't I don't blame them necessarily because Mercedes engine and support is is probably going to be better than than Renault. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I know when, so Danny Ricardo back in 2018, when he stepped down from, uh, um, when he stepped down from Red Bull, uh, part of his reasoning was Red Bull was moving to a Honda engine. He didn't think Honda had what it took uh, to be in Formula One anymore, right? I mean, Honda was mm-hmm. a big name in Formula One back. Honda, you know, supplied the MP44 McLaren engine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the famous um, uh, Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost car. So, you know, Honda was was a huge name in Formula One and has it been recently and then re-entered through Red Bull and obviously did really well last season. Um, but Danny Ricardo, when they first made that announcement, supposedly he didn't believe that uh, they were the way to go. And Red Bull was having, you know, reliability issues that season anyway. So he went to Renault thinking Renault was going to be the more reliable engine. But at that time, wasn't Red Bull running Renault engines? They were. And uh, he thought Renault was the better engine um, because Renault, the team itself, was doing was doing fine. And they were kind of kind of, you know, I think he saw. Oh, sorry, I, I, mi- I misunderstood you. You said like Renault was going to be the better engine. Oh, better than Honda. Okay. Better than Honda. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. I, I don't blame him for that because I mean Honda and McLaren were was kind of a disaster. I don't know if you've seen the Grand Prix driver documentary on Amazon. Uh, which one? What's it called? Grand Prix driver. Oh no, I haven't. Okay, that's a very interesting documentary. It's it's very different than uh, Drive to Survive. It's just, it's all just McLaren when they had Shuffle Van Dorn and um, Fernando Alonso there. And from my understanding, the season is actually incomplete. Like it's just one season and like six episodes or something when they were supposed to be eight or ten because McLaren were just having such a disastrous year that they just like stopped allowing the film crews and stuff. And like it wasn't even entertainment worthy. Like they were doing so poorly. The the behind the scenes footage and the story was just not going to be entertaining enough. That That's my understanding. But if you have a chance, go check out Grand Prix Driver on Amazon Prime. That's 
very like you definitely see the 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 honda issue with mclaren very well in that documentary so you think that like ideally uh sebastian vettel should go to mercedes i kind of agree i think it would be good for vettel i think it would be good for mercedes it might unsettle lewis hamilton a little bit which could make things a lot more entertaining i got nothing against lewis uh, i mean in the beginning i thought he was kind of a jerk but he's definitely matured uh, as a champion and i think he's a great guy now um mm-hmm. i got nothing bad to say but i'm always rooting that he loses <laughs> at the same time because i just I, I don't like when one person just dominates a season so strongly it just it takes it away from me you know i like yeah. that being down to the you know the abu dhabi race where they decide what the winner is going to be um right. you know we'll talk about the senate documentary later about how that was decided in japan like twice in mm-hmm. You know, at least twice um, during the, this, the documentary season. I can't see Vettel really considering anything but Mercedes. Right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I Like, I don't think he would ever go with Renault. So if Danny Ricardo is going to constantly beat Landon Norris, I think that's fine. But if Landon Norris starts challenging Danny Ricardo, I don't know how well that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's expected that Landon Norris is going to be second to to Ricardo. But I don't know. I mean, I, they they both seem to not take themselves too seriously and not take I don't want to say not take racing too seriously, but not take um not take it too personally. I think is mm-hmm. really the way. I think they can have a good battle with each other, and even if they if one loses to the other, they can go out and have a drink afterward. They just seem like right. the guys, but not that I know them or anything, right? Right, right. <laughs> Speaking, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think I think Carlos Sainz was was such a you know a quiet reserved serious driver uh compared to lando norris who's you know just kind of always making jokes and and seems more laid back with everything um so i think you know having signs and and uh or excuse me having norris and um ricardo together just seems like uh, a more fun match so we'll see do you think that ferrari made a good choice with carlos signs yeah i do um i think signs and and honestly and and leclerc they just seem pretty similar i was kind of thinking that maybe alonzo was going to come into the picture and go back to ferrari mm-hmm. uh so that was kind of the first thought in my mind or i thought um danny ricardo was going to jump into uh to ferrari those were kind of the first two thoughts i thought sign was like an outside third chance uh he ended up getting it so you know i was wrong on that but um i mean time will tell i think signs is a great driver you know i think ferrari is a a team that's not doing as well as they have in the past Compared mm-hmm. to their competitors, I think, you know, Red Bull might be passing Ferrari as far as, um, you know, the vehicle itself um, with Mercedes still being on top. So I think it's going to be Ferrari battling Red Bull for second place. But, uh, you know, I'm more increasingly leaning toward uh, Red Bull as the stronger car, although Ferrari is my more favorite team just from the, you know, the heritage and everything. And Charles Leclerc, I love as a driver. Um, so I've always been kind of, you know, wearing red. I don't know. Who knows? Um, was it a good move for, for Carlos? I think moving out of uh, McLaren that I think is more of an up and coming team. I think, you know, I think McLaren's going to be battling for Ferrari in the next couple of seasons. Um, I just think that they're really on a good, strong path forward. You know, so signs leaving and jumping to Ferrari. It's such a I think a badge of of uh, of honor to to drive for Ferrari because they have just such a big heritage. So I think oh, every yeah. driver dreams to drive for Ferrari and compare that to every driver dreaming to drive for you know Renault. It's just not there as much, right? Right. Ferrari's the target when you're a kid. Everybody loves the red Ferraris and they want to drive for a Ferrari, not so much a silver arrow. Did Ferrari approach Danny Ricardo? I don't know okay. that uh, if there are any talks. I I have to. 
to assume, but I think it, the fact that Danny jumped seats um, tells me he was looking. So I can't imagine that they didn't have some kind of conversation uh, yeah, or, I mean, or one was reaching out to the other. On, on social media that I've seen, it was, it was most of the talk was about Danny Ricardo not going to Ferrari or like, why didn't he go to Ferrari? And do you think it was just a, a pay thing? I can't imagine it was a pay thing um, because there's no way that uh, maybe there is. I don't know. I know. I know Renault. I, I feel bad for Renault, right? Because they dished out a lot of money for. Oh yeah. Danny Ricardo, and you know, there's even um, uh, um, Toto. Not uh, and there's even Christian Horner. Um, you know, making a joke in in I think season one where he goes, you know, how could you afford the car when you spent so much on on Danny Ricardo or something like mm-hmm. that? You know, do you yeah, guys have money that. left after after spending that on him? And um, you know, to get one season out of him with Renault. Right. And then him to jump and not even like, you know, drive that second season. It's just so that's that's where I'm kind of like, come on, Danny, like, you know, be a man of your word a little bit. But at the same time, I totally get why he would move to McLaren, um, you know, given given the path that they're on. Because, like I said, I'm becoming more and more of a McLaren fan. And mm-hmm. Renault just had issues in 2019 and they couldn't deliver um, probably what they, you know, sold Danny on. You know, I'm sure there was a meeting like, oh, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. Our car is great, it's awesome. And then it really wasn't. Um, you know, and, and I don't think it was by any fault of Danny's. He seemed to drive really well last year. The the race team for Ferraris, it's not Scuderia Ferrari. It's pronounced Scuderia. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, I've, heard them, I've heard them both ways. Uh, okay. I say Scuderia. Uh, Scuderia, I've heard also. I, I think probably half the time I say Scuderia. Half okay. the time I say Scuderia. I think British people say Scuderia. Americans say Scuderia. Scuderia. Um, I can't do Scuderia. I, I've got to say Scuderia because Scuderia just sounds like diarrhea to me. And that's just not good. Just combine the two. Scuder, Scuderia. <laughs> Scuderia. Scuderia. A drive, a drive, racing drive for Diaria Ferrari. <laughs> All right, so, Chaz, the uh, sun is out, it's shining, the weather is warm, and I am getting the itch for track days now that the world is opening back up. I've never actually done a track day, car or motorcycle, but I was, I've been looking up a track day organization uh, for motorcycles called Evolve GT, and I was very pleasantly surprised at the tracks that they go to. Um, a lot of times, the nearest um, track with a very well-known track day organization is New Jersey Motorsports Park, which is like four or five hours away. Um, I hate driving to New Jersey Motorsports Park. I've done it. I've done it before, and it's just a long, lonely ride or drive down the New Jersey Turnpike. So I'm not a fan of that drive. But Evolve GT does go to New York Safety Track, and they also go to Palmer. Um, And I saw they, I think in June, they have a date set. I don't know if they've been canceled, but I was like, oh, it was like June 6th. Um, At Palmer? Yeah, they're having a motorcycle track day. I had a June 8th date um, scheduled for Palmer. And uh, today, just got an email from the organizer. Uh, I got an email two days ago saying everything's on. We're good. We just got to go. Okay, we're going to be at Palmer. And then mm-hmm. today they said, no, apparently that was uh, subject to, you know, the the, overse- the health overseers or something like that. And okay. it got denied. So Palmer is not allowing track days right now. 
New York safety track, though, I think they've been doing days, so I think they're open. I mean, track day, it makes total sense as like a social distancing activity. I'm excited that Evolve GT, which is a very good track day organization, goes to New York safety track and Palmer because those are two tracks that are much closer than New Jersey Motorsports Park. And um, I definitely would love to ride both of those tracks. Yeah, I'm surprised they call it New York safety track. If you ever look at the track, there's nothing that seems safe about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. Like, once I saw Evolve GT goes there, I was like, okay, I got to look at the track map. I got to see how far away it is. Like, I was looking up everything about New York safety track, and I was like, there's not that much runoff space. A lot of trees. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, this is all grass. There's no gravel traps. Oh, yeah. 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 How, how safe is this? And I, I think wonder that's a, name they, a marketing name so they can pitch it to the, you know, to the county or whatever to approve it <laughs> that makes sense as you mentioned Chaz, like your track day at palmer got canceled um track days at least for cars are changing and and you as a track and, and driving instructor you're kind of on the up and up uh with that information so what's what's new what's going to change about uh driving track days going forward yeah, so track days across the country have already started happening. Um, I know uh, Road Atlanta in Georgia, because Georgia opened up pretty early, right? So they, uh, I saw some friends uh, that were down there and posted some pictures uh, from the track day and people standing six feet away from each other in a paddock listening to someone with a megaphone, you know, give the, uh, the driver's meeting versus, you know, a, a close huddle like we're used to. Um, but the big thing that I was concerned about, like you said, the instructing, right? So typically when I do instructing, there's there's a couple parts to it. There's a classroom instruction, which is that's fairly easy. Just move it outside, keep people apart from each other, um, you know, weather permitting, then that's the way to do it. I think they've actually talked about doing it through Zoom where people just sit in their cars and they, they dial in from their phone to a driver's meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I'd rather see it outside in, in an outside classroom if possible. But mm-hmm. the other part that they were worried about is the in-car. Um, so a couple things, you know, in car, uh, I usually, a typical instruction event is I meet a student and I learn about the car. I ask them about their experience. Um, if they're a fairly new driver, I typically I'll drive their car for the first couple laps just to mm-hmm. show them the, the line, point mm-hmm. out where the flaggers are, get them familiar with what the track looks like and kind of what to expect. I don't drive it hard. It's usually, you know, a double yellow lap anyway. So I'm driving it at, you know, five tenths or six tenths of what I can drive. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just give them a taste of what to expect throughout the day. We come into pit lane, we swap, we go back out. Um, But, you know, uh, then I'm sitting right seat for the rest of the day and I'm coaching them. Um, And we also use uh, helmet to helmet communicators. So the specific one I have is, is, uh, it's not built into my helmet, but I basically, you know, I have uh, headphones and microphones phone permanently installed into my helmet and then it connects to a box outside of the helmet where I plug in a microphone and the microphone is it's a microphone with an earpiece it's kind of one solid piece you know maybe you know nine inches long or something like that and they stick it in the ear and it's flexible so they can bend the mic so when they get in the car with their helmet on they slide it up into the helmet and then they have a mic so obviously that's not going to be something that's going to be allowed because I pass that from you know usually from people to people um, throughout the day and and that's not going to be you know even if I uh, sanitize it it's not considered sanitized right now mm-hmm. uh, given everything and then also you have two people in a car granted their helmets are on their face shields are typically closed um, if they have face shields so is that going to be okay and the verdict that we're hearing from you know organizations like nasa the uh the, the north american um uh or what is it the national auto sport association um 
released guidelines saying that they are not going to allow in-car instruction at their events. And uh, after they released that, uh, other clubs kind of followed suit. So what they're doing instead is called lead follow. So lead follow is something that organizations like Skip Barber and Bob Barant uh, Racing have been doing in the past. And, you know, when you're teaching somebody to drive in a formula car, you don't have the ability to sit with them, right? It's a one-seater. Right. So what you do is lead follow. So you drive in front of them and you drive the line, usually drive at, you know, seven or eight tenths of what you can drive and they drive behind you and you're watching them in your mirrors as you're driving and, um, and then you're kind of giving feedback. So either you have communication with them directly so you can give them live feedback or you do a couple sessions you come in and then you coach them on what you saw um, and then a lot of times there's an instructor in the back too that's doing the same thing and watching the student and and you know giving instruction as well so lead follow is not something i've ever done um, so because of that a lot of instructors that i work with have never done lead follow either um, so Ross Bentley, who's um, very, very well known in the uh, the driving racing world and the uh, the instructor world, especially, he wrote a book called Speed Secrets. Um, you know, it's on Amazon. You can check it out. It's it's kind of the ultimate bible for um, for race car drivers as far as uh, you know how to go faster. That in the book Going Faster, which is by Skip Barber. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so Ross Bentley authors uh, or Speed Secrets author Ross Bentley hosted a webinar last night, and uh, I attended that. And the webinar uh, was talking about the best practices when it comes to um, lead follow. So Ross Bentley is also heading up the Motorsport Foundation (MSF), um, which is trying mm-hmm. to um, standardize instructor practices and and track day practices. So I am now MSF2 licensed, which there's uh, going to be multiple levels. Right now, there's only two available. Um, so I have that second level, and um, you know that's that's a course that I had to go through online to get the first level. And then an in-person two-day course to get the uh, the MSF2 designation. Um, and uh, so part of uh, the standardization is standardizing lead follow. So that's a new thing that they're doing. So different hand signals, like if you tap the roof, that means follow me. If I'm pointing my finger to the sky and circling it, you know, out the window, that means swap, you know, the second and third car. Because typically you'd have about three cars following you. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they do a lead follow and uh, you know there's different other practices and stuff that we went over um and yeah so that was basically the the gist of the webinar um you know uh, between us chickens here and anyone else listening um i, I thought there was a lot of uh it was, it was a bit of a bitch fest in the the comments <laughs> section um oh. where people were complaining um about doing lead follow and and you know my answer was then don't do it you know, if, if it's not worth it, step aside. I'd be happy to instruct and I'm happy to come in because, uh, you know, people are complaining about it's going to use up tires as an instructor. It's going to use tires twice as fast. And, you know, I'm thinking if, if you're if you're concerned about tires as opposed to, you know, the student learning, then I think you're in this for the wrong reason. Um, but, right. you know, that's kind of my two cents. Yeah, uh, it's not really my place to judge. But, you know, you have the choice. If you don't want to instruct, don't instruct. If it's not your thing, don't do it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's something I'm happy to try and to see how it works. Now, is it going to be as effective as in-car coaching? Of course not. No, you don't have, you know, in-car coaching. I can see a mistake well before it happens. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of times I can, you know, give give an auditory and a visual to the student to help get them out of it. Right. If somebody turns in too early, 
I know they're going to track out too wide. So I can mm -hmm. say, look, you know, watch your track out, watch your track out. No, no, wait for the throttle, wait for the throttle, because you can't get on the throttle because you'll go too wide. Right. Because uh, I know they're going to have to pinch the exit because of how early they turned in. Right. Um, I, I can't give that immediate feedback from a different car um, watching in my mirrors. Yeah. Uh, I can't see where their eyes are looking as, uh, as clearly if I'm in a, car, a different car. Um, right. I can't feel how smooth they are. I can't see what their hand position is. I can't feel how their downshifting is um, uh, or their brake application. The brake application, I can probably pick that up from the mirror. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to try because, again, I've, I haven't done this yet. So I'm, I'm just basing this on, you know, guessing. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot to, I think, a lead follow. But it's been a very successful program with Skip Barber and other people. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm I'm willing to try it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you should mention uh, kind of people's resistance to to changing of an, an instruction instructor and the instruction methods because similar thing happens in motorcycle instructing as well. Um, I mean, I'm not a track instructor. I'm just kind of a like a regular rider coach for people to learn how to ride motorcycles. Um, but yeah, I mean, every every few years there's updates and. And stuff, uh, interestingly, from the organization called MSF, uh, which is the mo <laughs> yeah the Motorcycle Safety Foundation, uh, different different MSF. Um, but yeah, they they change things and like little methods and people who have been doing doing things one way for years and years and years. There's resistance and they think that doing this is better than the official way and blah blah blah. So yeah, it's uh, I can I can kind of visualize what what was happening and kind of see that, that, um, that, uh, that argument happening. Yeah. I mean, that's, I agree. It's always going to be the case. You change and people are not going to like the change, but I don't see this as a change so much as a bandaid, right? It's either this or nothing at all. Um, you know, um, and maybe nothing at all is the better way. Um, who knows, you know, is this going to be safe to have a student do this? I mean, you know, track driving is only as safe as, as it could be anyway. Um, you know, it's not the exact, you know, if, you, if you're Mr. Play it safe, then you're not out there track driving. Right. Um, right. but that being said, I think this is, this is safe enough. Um, some benefits that Ross brought up that I totally agree with is, you know, you can control the student's speed a lot better if you're in a yeah. car in front of them. Uh, having yeah. the conversation of saying, look, if you try to hang back just so you can go fast through a section, we're done. Like, mm. like we're, we're ending the session right there. Don't do that. That's not going to be allowed. You're going to yeah. stay three car distances behind me. And that's that's that. So kind of laying down the law there. Um, right. Then, you know, again, you control the speed of the car. Right. Um, so, you know, it comes to the instructor to think, well, look, is it worth it for me to drive slow? Like that is I, I don't want to drive slow just to have a student keep up. Um or I don't want to drive fast while I'm instructing and, and not having fun because I have to instruct. And I don't know. I just, again, I just think that's, it's a little ridiculous. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I come from an education background, right? Uh, you know, you and I were both teachers in the past. I was a flight mm -hmm. instructor before that. So the education part is, is very fascinating to me and um, trying this a different way and trying to adapt to this, I think is a, a is going to be a fun challenge. A lot of times if I'm instructing with a student, sometimes I'll say, hey, why don't you come out with me for this session? Let me show you how I do a certain area or right. you know, what you can work up to, which is that can, that can also come and bite you if you demonstrate to a student what you can do. And then they try to monkey see monkey do and, and <laughs> get over their head. Um, you know, yeah. I, I almost was in a, uh, uh, doing a, um, I, somebody asked me if they can drift their Tesla uh, and I asked if I can try it first um, because he was having trouble. So I got in the car, I was able to drift it. It was a model three. 
Uh-huh. And then we switched seats, and then we almost went off the track and crashed <laughs> because we were trying to copy that. So, oh, um, as uh, as you know, owner of SCDA told me right afterward, this is the problem with doing, you know, with with driving a, a student's car. And uh, you know, it was a lesson learned. Um, yeah, it was something I knew, but it was very cemented that day when it was like this guy was such a docile driver, I didn't have to worry about, it, and all of a sudden he's he's all over the road after watching me, and that was. Oh, my. Uh, it was a little scary, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't hit anything. We didn't even uh, we went in the grass, but we didn't hit any anything. Yeah, no. So the last thing I'll say is I'm I'm looking forward to the, some of the days picking up, and there's a couple more on the calendar in the future. Um, and uh, you know, after I try a lead follow, I'll 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 report back how that goes. The last episode that we did, we uh, discussed our watch it with us uh, documentary, which we were going to watch between then and now, which was, uh, the documentary Senna, which was debuted in 2011. And it is a approximately two hour documentary about, uh, the racing career of, uh, or excuse me, the formula one racing career of Ayrton Senna. And just before we go any further, I just want to let our listeners know that we, um, we are going to be talking about, uh, formula one cars crashing and the results of those crashes, uh, both on the sport and on the drivers themselves. So um, we might be discussing uh, some graphic descriptions of the crashes. So just want to forewarn our listeners before we, we get into it. You had mentioned earlier, like the season coming down to Japan. I don't know what year it was, but when um, when 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 Senna went for like a really tiny gap against um is it alan prost or prost uh prost Prost. (laughs) yeah so so when uh senna tries to go in this little gap against prost at the the japanese grand prix and like they both go off track but then senna gets his his car restarted and he goes through the little um i want not chicane like he skips the chicane by going through the um not what what's that that term called like the the runoff yeah if you will yeah so he does yeah. Right. He does that. He ends up winning the race after that happens, but then the win gets taken away from him. And um, that was very interesting. Like it was such a very obvious, obviously political move, right? Because yeah. the FIA president was French and Alan uh, Prost was French. And, um, and even some of the other drivers were kind of aghast at the decision and kind of making fun of it here and there. Like, well, what what is that runoff there for if you're not supposed to, you know, go through it? And it's obviously going to be slower than going through the chicane properly, um, you know, and nobody else had been penalized in, in the same way that Senna had been um, for going through that runoff runoff area. I was surprised at that, at the, the political nature of formula one i if i were prost i would not feel satisfied with my with a win or world championship that was based on on a a little technicality like that yeah i think i think uh a lot of people didn't like alam after that right because senna was this up-and-coming champion he had won in 1988 right and then the race that you're talking about was 1989 um so he'd become you know the world champion in 1988 and he'd won japan the year before um you know it started raining um that was where he stalled at the start dropped from like first to 14th and then um you know uh, eventually came back and won the race and uh won the world championship and then going into this race it'd been such a heated back and forth with them all season and then alan is uh leading in points going into the race so all that has to happen is is senna needs to not score a point or you know become disqualified or taken out and um 
what bothered me so much about that is you watch it and they talk a little bit about this in the documentary and you can see Alon turns in early, mm. right? Like in racing, there's a turn in point, there's an apex and there's a track out. And, and, you know, if you're a student, typically they mark these with cones at the racetrack of where do mm-hmm. you, in, where do you, where do you, you know, hit the inside of the corner? Where do you track out to wide to the end of the corner? And, you know, it's part of the racing line. And if you look, he turns in so early that if he had, when, when Senna is so clearly on the inside of him, mm-hmm. where if, if he had actually done that when there's no car around, like he would have gone flying off the outside of the track because it was just mm-hmm. such an early turn in that you would either have to brake ridiculously slow to not go off the track or you'd yeah. go off the track. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd watched the documentary before and I just rewatched it kind of leading up to this. And I kind of missed that last time. And, and just watching it like the replay from the, the sky shot above, like, yeah, he's turning in super early, uh, which which leads me to believe that it was more of a deliberate move. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because they had, you know, just not good blood leading up to that. And then that really, really put the, the nail on the coffin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of it's it's good to hear you say that. um that Prost turned in early um, at that chicane because I I think they discussed it on the documentary, but just being when I watch it, my like my I, I'm watching it with a, like uneducated eyes, right? Like I can't I can't tell just exactly like I just kind of have to take their word for it, right? Like I'm I'm new to to track driving and and everything, so I can I can kind of see it, but it's it's like yeah. it's good to know that like to you it's very obvious especially from the from the overhead shot yeah if he was to move you know like to turn in that early like if he was saying well i was trying to block him well he's not because leading up into the corner he actually moves wide because senna's there senna's on the inside so he has mm-hmm. to move wide and then so he's set up for a perfect race line and then he has to he has to overbreak because senna's already kind of committed to the corner mm-hmm. uh, or he can say, well, screw it. This is my corner. I'm going to turn in. But then you turn in at the normal spot and then you it's going to create a race accident unless Senna, you know, slams on the brake, which that's not Senna style at all. Um, right. You know, Senna's going to go for that corner. And, and they even question him, like saying, hey, you crashed with a lot more people than than other world champions. But anyway, um, but the fact that he so if he had just turned in normal. You can maybe make the argument of he was thinking Senna was going to back off. He already had the corner made. Senna wasn't moved up enough. It would be, I think, more of a debate. But really, when I watch that footage, um, it, it really does look like he turns in early. And it looks like it was a deliberate, um, you know, either trying to scare him to break and not, you know, and go off the track or cause the accident like he did. And then I think for, I think that shows you the difference. I mean, I don't know the condition of Elon's car, but um, when uh, when Senna is like, no, 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 we're, we're going, we're going, we're going. And he drives with his wing all broken in half and he pushes to get back into the pits to get a new wing and then to go out there even after an accident, even after going into the pits for a new wing and still wins the race i mean that's the heart of a champion i think that was right awesome. that was so cool that was like a cinderella story and then just had to slap in the face um to take it away for him and then you know they talk about in the documentary look at all these other times that somebody used an escape route like that and how they did not get penalized but you know senna did and it's, it's bs it's awful yeah for sure and i like isn't like sh- if Prost had been fast, even on the outside at the start of the chicane, couldn't he take the outside of, of the first turn and then the second turn in the chicane, he would be on the inside? 
Yeah. So if he could somehow maintain, if, if he stayed side by side with him, was able to turn in, then he would block Senna from tracking out wide because he would be there, right? So Senna would right. have to uh, Senna wouldn't be able to carry the exit speed. He'd have to choke up on the throttle or add a more brake or something so that he could right. go wide. And then you're right. He would have the inside line going into the left-hander with Senna being wide. Um, and then that would screw up Senna's line. So Senna wouldn't be able to get on the throttle. Had he done that, he would have maintained the position. But how fast Senna was coming up, um, Senna would have just got him on the next corner. And I think a lot knew that. Is yeah, he could have maintained it for that chicane, um, but then he was going to lose it at the next corner or maybe yeah. the corner after that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's there was no way he was holding him off for much longer. True. That was. I mean, that gap at the chicane that Senna goes for is very small, though. Like I, I when I see that, I'm like, that's really risky. Like I, I like I kind of wonder, like, why would you go for that that gap right there when yeah, he could have done it at a uh, like a more open corner where there's a little more. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's faster than him down the straight, right? So mm-hmm. then he moves to the inside. His nose is there. So Senna has a couple of choices, right? He either slows down. Mm-hmm. Says, I'm not going to do it on this corner. I'll do it on another corner. Right. Um, but then you're, you know, you're slowing down on a mid on a straight that you're clearly faster. Yep. But what he's thinking is I'm faster than him. I'm going to be alongside him going into the break zone. So I have this corner made. That's right. probably what Senna's thinking. And yeah. then process thinking, no, he's not quite far enough inside. I'm going to go ahead and turn in because I have this corner made. And right. then that's, you know, that's a racing incident. If that happens, right. Right. Because right. Like who has the corner, you know, uh, corner right away stuff is, is kind of always tough to go by because, you know, how far up on the inside do you have to be before you have that corner made and the other guy has to yield? Uh, because if you're only, you know, right up to his tire, the other guy can turn in and then you need to back off because you didn't quite get there on time, right? Right. Um, so that would have been thing. But, you know, again, it, re- it really does look like he turns in early. And uh, that so that bothered me because I always thought of, yeah, it could have been a racing incident. Who knows? Was it on purpose? Who knows? But after watching it again, I, I'm really on the, you know, thinking that he might have done it on purpose. Yeah. Kind of don't blame him at the same time, but it's it's not a, an honorable thing to do, you know. Yeah, I mean, but, I don't I don't blame him so much for the on track action as the off track action, like going to the stewards and yeah. complaining about it, you know. Yeah. I and mean, it's like, you know what? If you really if you if you wanted it that badly, why didn't you stay in your car, get it started, and then battle Senna for the win? Yep. Yeah, he knew he wasn't faster, and the only way he could win was through politics, and that's what he did, and that's how he won. Um, yeah. But fast forward one year, 1990, mm-hmm. remember what happens? Uh, I the end of, yeah, the I, wa- I, I watched. I, I haven't watched Senna as recently as as you have, um, but I'm I'm just like trying to vaguely remember. Yep. So fast forward to the following year. Now going into the Japan race, um, now Senna is leading on points. So Alan needs to be the one who not, doesn't finish for Senna to win. So the, the my, 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 how the turntables to quote Michael Scott. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, so what ended up happening is uh, Senna qualified first. Mm-hmm. They changed it. So they moved. Oh, him that's right. Out. Yeah. So they moved. Yeah. Him he protested that to say. You're putting me on the dirtier part of the track. I'm not going to have as much grip. And they kind of said, well, sorry, you know, we made the decision. We're going to move you to here. 
typically, you know, first place, at least in a lot of racing series, first place in qualifying gets to choose where they want to be on the grid, right? Yeah. There's, but there's always the the typical spot that you'd choose. It, does, it wouldn't make sense to choose another part. But anyway, um, so going into the first corner, same corner, I think, right? That was turn one, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so going into that corner, um, you know, uh, Senna goes to the inside and takes Prost out. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, because he was battling for that first place, Prost got the better start because he was on the better gravel, or mm-hmm. not gravel, but the better uh, tarmac. Mm-hmm. And um, so they take each other out. So now they were both taken out again. In this case, nobody tried to finish. And uh, because of that, Senna ended up winning the world championship in 1990. So mm-hmm. it was pure payback. And, yeah. uh, you know, you could tell, it, you could tell from the, the, the interviews and stuff, it looked like Senna felt dirty doing that. But at the same time, it's like, <laughs> well, you know, Kind of deserved it, so yeah. Oops. How much he got screwed over leading up to 1990 and even beyond. The onboard footage during, yeah, just like uh, with the uh, the racing together documentary, I thought that the race footage um, was great in the doc in in Senna, and it really gave me a like a good idea of of the history of the sport, and it was kind of neat to see how the sport was during a time that I was alive, right? Like in the late 80s early 90s it was like oh yeah like i remember this year i remember 1993 i remember 1994 um as a kid um but especially a lot the onboard footage senna's onboard footage mm-hmm. um did they um that gave me a better idea of what you were talking about uh a couple episodes ago when when you were saying like you enjoy driving the car that's a handful to drive and yeah. um seeing the onboard footage in in senna really gave me a better sense of that and i was just like man this thing looks like a blast to drive like i think just watching senna go around monaco i was like oh, yeah. dang this is awesome you know i mean did were they using sequential uh gearboxes at the time because they were it looks like he was shifting pretty quickly yeah, he's hand shifting it. I think it was sequential at the time. Um, but you know, especially my, uh, you know, him out in the rain, um, just watching him trying to manhandle that car, um, and even in the dry, um, just watching him drive that car is is incredible. Yeah, so I I love that, and um, I, I you know I love I love watching that era of Formula One cars, like the in the in car stuff. It's so awesome. Yeah, I get uh, that sense with the current day cars. Although the current day cars, I'm sure, are are quite a handful to drive. I don't think they're quite what they were back in that era i think the the cars of that era are kind of they're kind of funny to me um like they look almost toyish um they're way smaller like the wheelbase is a lot smaller than our current cars and you could see that in monaco too right because the older cars go through that hairpin at monaco way easier and and if you look at current cars like if you don't hit it perfect you're gonna get stuck because the car is so long yeah, yeah, that's actually something I want to talk about uh, at some point when we do F1 versus MotoGP. It's like I really think that the wheelbase of the F1 cars needs to be reduced because they look so slow around some corners, and mm-hmm. it's like slow and laborious, and like like overtakes in a corner just look ugly and annoying. Yep. But um, that's a different conversation. But anyway, like the yeah, the Formula One cars of Senna's era. Are, yeah, they look kind of toyish to me in in some ways because the guys are sitting up very upright in the cockpit. Like the cockpit's very far forward in the car. They do have kind of a funny look to them, even if the the onboard footage is really great. Speaking of footage, I was surprised at like how much of the crashes get shown on TV and stuff. It was rough. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, holy crap. When I watched Martin Donnelly's crash and like his car was just destroyed. I don't know where he crashed, but like the the worst part was that, I mean, car crashes now in, in, in racing, like pretty much you don't really see much of the driver. You just kind of see the car. It's left pretty much intact. There's a lot of safety stuff, obviously. But like to see he was ejected from his car and is like lying there in the middle of the track. It looked like his foot was facing in the other direction. Yeah. Like yeah. Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, his leg brutal. his leg was going the wrong way and like involuntarily I, I let out an audible like oh like when yeah. I saw that. Like I couldn't help it. It was just like I saw Martin Donnelly just like out there on the ground, you know, with his leg twisted and going the wrong way. It was it was like, ooh, ooh. I like I I get kind of I don't know queasy like thinking about it now. But like I mean, thank God he survived. You know, I was like I was like, oh God, that guy's dead. You know, I I cannot believe that he survived and he's still alive to this day. But holy crap, that was kind of sickening just seeing that crash. Mm. And I can't like I want to know the physics of that because like how the hell did he get? ejected from his car and just like he's just out there on the on the track with like his seat is like he's still attached to his seat but like the seat is like out of the car Oof. yeah it was interesting the crashes that are toward the end that are well not toward at the end of the film was it imola they were racing at mm-hmm. i always thought it was monza yeah but they, it don't was... Go, they don't go the season doesn't go there anymore but uh, okay imola. yeah so in in qualifying at the end when roland ratzenberger crashes um like that's a pretty wicked crash but it almost looked like he was gonna be okay i mean again it was kind of sickening to see the like the end of the crash with like his head kind of like rolling like lolling around yeah and like that happens to people when they get knocked out anyway um like there are some pretty pretty wild like motorcycle crashes like if a rider gets knocked out when they crash like they they look like a rag doll after they get knocked out because they have like no control over their limbs right um i was surprised that ratzenberger ended up being killed in that crash because like when i see somebody basically like in in their cockpit still that's a good sign to me at least um and then the crash itself looked kind of weird like it didn't really look that much of a head-on crash but yeah sadly roland ratzenberger got killed in that crash you you Um, see them trying to revive him too like with the cpr and that's when senna even because he was watching it live and on the tv and he just like closed his eyes it's like oh and then like had to walk away because it was just watching them like try to revive on cpr i think that's when they realized like he oh no he, he didn't make it right at the same time like that i felt like emotionally primed me for uh for senna's crash which happened the next day and again a crash that didn't didn't necessarily look head-on or at least the impact didn't look head-on it looked kind of kind of sideways and then yeah i mean senna like doesn't really have that same that same head movement that roland ratzenberger had um but i like i knew that senna ended up being killed in that crash um but i was i was ready for it knowing what happened and then having having watched roland ratzenberger crash I was I was I was ready for it emotionally. Yeah, and you know they they show the onboard uh, of like the lap leading up to it, and then right before the crash, that's where they cut to the 
the camera on the outside and um you know supposedly it was it was a suspension piece that just mm-hmm. hit him directly in the helmet at the right angle um just enough to kill him because they said he had no bruises or broken bones or anything mm-hmm. um so had that missed him by six inches in either direction you know he would have just gotten out of the car and walked away from it right um which is it's awful to think of and um you know it's also they they still don't really know why he crashed um you know if you look at the onboard he's turned in like normal and then the car just doesn't go Mm -hmm. um so that looks like you know a steering failure of some sort or maybe a failure likely a steering failure um i think is what what people think and um you know i would i would probably agree with that just from watching the video because it's you know they say that's not really an area where you would crash like that because it's like something mechanical had to go wrong with the car yeah um how i mean would he have communicated with the with the pit crew at that point like right but like before he crashed been like oh i i lost i just lost suspension or i I just lost steering it looked like it happened mid-corner because he turns in the car starts to turn in fine and then stops Uh turning in now you know me as a driver is like oh shit oh shit oh shit that's the only thing you can really say at that point. <laughs> True. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a little too late to. Yeah. To if it had you know, been on the front straight and he felt like something breaked, then that's one thing. But it looks like it kind of happens mid corner because the initial turn in looks like it's there and then it just doesn't happen from there. Yeah. Um, yeah I think mechanical failures are probably the scariest thing as a driver. You know, a brake failure or steering failure, suspension failure, you know, the wrong part of a track. Um, you know, Vettel had that happen to him uh, in I think it was Brazil. No, it was Coda. Circuit of the Americas. Um, uh, in 2019, he had a suspension failure going over one of the curbs, and it was enough to break his suspension. But it's a very fast part of the track. He mm-hmm. was so lucky that he was just able to get control of the car, because um, something like that could just be like the worst nightmare for a driver. Yeah, I, th- I think Senna knew where the limit was better than most people, and he wasn't afraid to bring it to the limit. Um, and you know, they talk about this a little bit in the documentary too, where people say. Oh, because he's close to God, he feels immortal. And he's like, no, I don't feel immortal. I fear death as much as anybody else. It has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. He's like, I just, I just, you know, basically, I just know how to drive a car fast is, is kind of the undertone of what he's saying. Right. And uh, yeah, I think he, he, you know, race car drivers are always looking for the limit. You want to be at the limit at 100% of the time as much as possible. And um, he was able to get the car there. Um, and, and you can see that in all of his videos. And, and you know, nowadays, that's kind of what you need to be able to do. Um, even back then, that's what you need to be able to do but to, to kind of do it to the level that he did um just the confidence that he had in the car mm-hmm. um, and you can even see i think after his mexico crash um you know that was his first big crash and his confidence died down a little bit there so he wasn't as much on the on the limit as he had been prior to that mm-hmm. um because i think that mortality kind of kicked in a little bit for him yeah um, my favorite thing about senna i think is watching him in the rain mm-hmm um, and you know, that's, that's, I think really where he first started to become a big name because his first race in, in like Monaco in 1984, um, uh, you know, he was in a, basically like the equivalent of like a force India or like a Williams car, right. He was yeah. in the, the Tolman car and it started raining, uh, or I think it was raining the whole race and he ended up getting the car, uh, he passed Nikki Lauda, you know, he passed, you know, a world champion at the time. Um, and then he passed, uh, or he got up to second place. And was a going to pass, it seemed, because he had he, he had the fastest lap, he had the fastest pace, and was catching Alain Prost. And then Alain Prost, you know, was warning the stewards that they need to stop the race because of the rain. And they did. And they stopped the race, you know, just short of Senna being able to pass him. 
Yeah. Um, so Senna came in second, and he probably should have won that race. Um, but that was his first season, you know, and and so even coming in second was such like a huge win, and he even did a victory lap afterward, you know, from that race. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, anytime it rained uh, is when he did well. When he won his first Brazilian Grand Prix at his home country, you know, it started raining at that race. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know, anytime it's raining, he just uh, you know, raining is the greatest equalizer. It doesn't matter how much horsepower you have, you can't put the car, you can't put the horsepower down in the rain so you just have to be a good driver so it really comes down to how good of a driver are you and you know the movie the art of racing in the rain kind of talks about this a little bit too um so the drivers who are really good in the rain you know you put them in a fast car and they're going to be fast and and i think people recognize that and that's why he moved um you know from tolman into lotus and then eventually into mclaren the last thing i'll say is so we talked about um danny ricardo and how he's jumping from team to team so Mm -hmm. it was I, i thought it was a little weird that he went from mclaren to jump to Williams um, in the last season, um, you know, and ultimately into, into the car that killed him. But, um, you know, I thought that was that was a little odd, but I guess they were the ones who were the most technologically technologically advanced and then he moves to it just to have the rules changed um so that he they right. the technology and then it ends up being you know a, a car that he's barely able to keep in the top five um but you know the race that he ended up dying and you know he was leading over schumacher who had the the winning car that year um and kind of the best car but uh yeah so i mean that's you know that's that's kind of where jumping teams could i think screw people over as opposed to trying to stay put but you know that's the game that these drivers play is um you know follow the paycheck follow the car follow who's going to get me into a winning position as much as possible you gotta trust the team trust the car and they have to trust the driver um and you know and then pay is a factor as well yeah for sure you know after his death they they made huge strides sid Watkins, right the the doctor that Mm -hmm. uh that that helped him there mm-hmm. um you know that was one of his friends and uh, you know sid Watkins was such a, a monumental piece in formula one safety um just improving everything and you know watching one of his best friends die in his arms basically uh you know i, I think a big huge contributing factor to the, all of the safety that we have nowadays in formula one so um you know a lot of good i hate to say but a lot of good came out of that and um you know it's great to say that you know his death i think saved a lot of other drivers all right well that wraps up our discussion of um the documentary senna um, and that will wrap up our uh this episode of the petrol head podcast for the next time that we do uh watch it with us segment uh, we are going to be talking about uh a, another motorcycle documentary which is called on any sunday originally came out in 1971 so it's kind of a classic it's kind of the original motorcycling documentary uh it's it does have some uh racing in it but it's not quite as racing focused as something like senna or racing together um so that's the documentary on any sunday and that is available on amazon prime uh, you might be able to find it on uh, youtube as well uh, or uh, it might also be on netflix i don't uh, i don't know if it is uh or not but i know for sure it's on amazon prime uh so any final thoughts before we sign off Chaz? hopefully that one won't make me cry as much as senna made me cry because i definitely cried at the end oh watching uh <laughs> watching the funeral and all the people coming up to it and his sister crying sir williams and everything that was that was rough but all right so i'm hoping for a happier documentary <laughs> Yeah, no, on, on any Sunday is definitely happier. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's all about the joy of motorcycling and, and uh, the camaraderie that goes goes along with it. Um, so anyway, we are uh, the world is, is uh, coming to uh, the end of quarantine. So we hope to um, see you out there. 
riding your motorcycle, driving your car, enjoying uh, the sunshine, enjoying the track. Uh, hopefully life will be back to normal pretty soon. I'm Kyle, just saying stay safe out there. And I'm Chaz, saying speed safely.